0: Uh, Revelation 2, verses 18 to 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, and your faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira. Who do not hold this teaching. Who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say. I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.
1: All right, good morning, everybody. <clears throat> good to see you all. Until can tell we're going to have to get really used to sitting here uh, in, the, in the front. Let there be a lesson to you come in a little bit later. You got to sit more in the front rows here. <laughs> uh, yeah, we um, cleared out that whole tech table there and moved in the back in another room. We've We've had some cameras here for about a, a little over a year. We put them in the sanctuary thinking we'd eventually be back in there, but uh, as we're still in here, we thought, well, we might as well just start putting them in here. Not that we're going to stay in here indefinitely, but uh, if they, we might as we'll start using these cameras, and so we were able to clear things out. Uh, yeah, so apologies if you're at home watching me now in HD. Wow. Uh, come on out here. It's better in person anyway. So, <clears throat> All right. So we're continuing on through the book of Revelation. Uh, We're in this opening section here where Christ is specifically addressing, in in small fashion, these seven particular churches uh, with words that are also meant for all of us to hear and to listen to and apply to our lives. Uh, This morning we're dealing with this letter to the church in Thyatira, and basically the simple question I'm going after this morning is, what's the problem here, and why does it seem like it's such a big deal? I mean, as Matt read so powerfully, right, uh, Jesus preserves some pretty strong words here uh, for this church in Thyatira and what's going on there. And so we want to understand here, what's, what's the big issue and why is it such a problem? And I guess in particular, the reason I'm asking or we're going after that question is because Jesus also says in the very beginning, I see your works, your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance, which is a pretty good list to have on your your repertoire of things that are going well in your church, right? These are some core foundational things that Jesus always admonishes the church and his followers to pursue. These are the things that the apostle Paul is laying out for the church to be invested in, right? So that this church is doing well in areas of love and faith and service and endurance. And I don't know if you picked it up there, but that you know, Christ says, and I know that your latter works are exceeding the former, meaning that you're actually growing. And your, your walk in love and faith and service is actually deepening as the time goes on. Right? So I feel like if I was writing to a church that was doing this really well, like I would be writing to them saying, hey, guys, uh, you're, you know, you're killing it. You're doing a great job here. Good job. I, I mean, I have a few things for you that we can, you know, uh, tighten some things up and get even better. But on the whole, great job. So thankful, so proud for you guys, you know, proud of you guys, whatever. Right? But Jesus goes on to say, but this I have against you, and it's pretty strong stuff. And so, again, that question, what's the, what's the problem, and why is such a big deal? Or maybe if I could push that question just a little bit further, I might say, you know, if you're a young person here, young adult, uh, you've maybe come across this buzzword that's going around in culture of, of deconstruction, where a lot of young adults growing up in evangelical churches are uh, there's a sort of this trend of deconstructing their faith that they have kind of rooted their life in, built their life around, if they've, especially if they've been a part of, we have grown up in churches that were, I don't know, overly legalistic or too passionate about political issues or maybe anti-intellectual, whatever it was, Right? These, there's this movement among young adults to kind of deconstruct that faith. And the thing is, when that work of deconstruction is done, if there's any faith left, uh, it tends to be a faith that's rooted in Jesus and his message of love and faith, service, in the name of what is just and right and good and all of that. So I think it would be a challenge to, to those individuals. Okay, well, so what do you, you know, what's the deal here that you have this church that seem, seems whittled down to this? Yeah, they're excelling in areas of faith and love and service and patient endurance in the name of hope. And yet, how is it that Jesus still has something very much against them? And there is this strong call to repentance and this strong warning that the one with the eyes of fire sees and will give to each according to his works. So again, that's the question. What's the big deal? What's going wrong and what's the big deal? All right? If we answer that, mission accomplished. So let's talk about it. All right, these letters. Hopefully you're starting to pick up the form of these letters to these churches. It opens up with a uh, representation of Jesus. From the one who was the Son of God, with the eyes of flaming fire and the feet of of uh, burnished bronze. Okay, the thing is, right from, from our vantage point, we can read those things and we can think, okay, that's interesting, and we might interpret it one way. But there might be something really poignant in there for the Thyatirans. I think if Jesus was to write to the church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And maybe he said, from him who holds in his right hand a bell of bronze without blemish or crack, whose chime rings eternal, right? Somebody, I don't know, distant or far removed from Philadelphia might say, oh, that's kind of interesting, and try to make some interpretation of that, Whereas if you're from Philadelphia or anything or familiar with Philadelphia, you would think, okay, well, that may be a reference to our most historical icon, right, the Liberty Bell, that it has this giant crack up the middle after it was rung once or two, twice to pronounce liberty. And maybe that's a reference to Jesus as being the one, the better one to announce liberty and freedom and the pursuit of life and joy to the full and whose message doesn't wither and fade or crack over time, but, you know, rings eternal. Right, in a similar way, I think there's something significant about how Jesus chooses to identify himself to the church in Thyatira, Thyatira, uh, not all that significant of a city in comparison to some of these other cities uh, in, in the Roman Empire at that time. But one thing that's going on a lot in Thyatira are these, and we've talked about them a little bit, these these trade guilds or these business associations or, or just think like like unions. Right, If you're a carpenter, uh, you're a part of one of these trade guilds or these carpentry associations where you go and you network and you build relationships and this is where you find your job and people who will pay for your services right and so you got all a whole bunch of these going on in fire tyra and probably the biggest one is the iron and bronze workers trade guild these guys who uh smolder down bronze and iron you know uh remove all the burn away all the impurities to it and and then I don't know, make it into this thing that can be then fashioned into strong weapons or monuments or I, don't know, or I don't know, whatever. So this is probably the biggest trade guild going on in Thyatira. And all these trade guilds, as we've mentioned just in passing here, all these trade guilds have patron deities associated with them. Meaning that they have these gods that whenever they would get together, they would choose one of the gods from the pantheon of gods. And they would say, okay, you're going to be our god and we're going to bow to you. We're going to worship you, commit, you know, give sacrifices to you. And trust that you're going to you know, further our in- best interests as a trade association. You know, guard our interests and make us prosperous or whatever. A particular god of the iron workers or the bronze workers was Apollo. Apollo Tyramneus, he was the son of Zeus, right? So he was the son of the most high god in Roman culture. He was a warrior. He a god of war. Which is all to say, okay, so when Jesus introduces, oh, one other little thing, just a little tidbit of information if you want it. In Thyatira, they actually had part of their currency were these coins were on the back. You had Apollo and standing right next to uh, the, god, or the, the emperor of Rome, two individuals characterized as sons Of the God of gods, sons of gods. Which is all all to say that when you have Jesus giving his self-introduction as the son of God with eyes of fire and with feet of burnished bronze. Well, it could be a reference to the whole bronze trade guild there, but probably even more than that. it's, It's Jesus saying to you, hey, from the one who is to you, the better Apollo. Or the one who is the better patron deity to you, or the one who, when you entrust yourself to me, will more faithfully grant to you life, and will faithfully guard you, and more faithfully lead you into all the things that I have for you. Basically, from the one who is the better patron deity that you all attempted to bow down and worship, right? All right, and so then he goes on to see the one who's got eyes of fire. I see your good works. I see your faith, your love, your service, your patient endurance. Okay, but then here it is. But this I have against you, that you tolerate this prophetess Jezebel, this false prophetess, who's coming in and who's teaching these false things and who's seducing my servants away to food sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality. Okay, so here's the question. Who is this Jezebel lady? And you can pretty much answer that one of two ways. You can say, well, that's clearly a reference to some literal woman named Jezebel in the church who's preaching and teaching these things and leading people away. Or what I think is probably a more faithful reading of Revelation and what apocalyptic literature does is to see this as a symbolic reference of somebody or some group within the church. Think about last week. I remember in the letter to Pergamum, uh, they started to deal, and we started to talk about the Nicolaitans. And if you remember, when we were describing the Nicolaitans, uh, Jesus used a reference to the Old Testament. And we refer to the Nicolaitans as those of Balaam and Balak. Right? These Old Testament villains who were trying to trip up the Israelites and lead them astray when they were in the wilderness en route to the promised land from Egypt. Okay, well, Jezebel is another one of the classic Old Testament villains. She's probably in your list of top ten villains. Maybe in your list of top five villains of the Old Testament. Uh, She shows up in the reign of King Ahab, uh, which we hear in his introduction was more wicked than any of his fathers before him. And part of the reason he was so wicked is because he married this woman Jezebel. Jezebel was a Phoenician princess or a Sidonian princess, meaning she was the daughter of King Tyre, of the king of Tyre. And Ahab took her as one of his wives, probably to forge some kind of a relationship with the Sidonians. Uh, but Jezebel, the thing with Jezebel is that she is a devoted follower of the god Baal. And as soon as she moves into the palace in Israel, she immediately starts requesting, almost demanding, that there be all these little shrines and all these little temples set up for Baal so that she can go and worship and other people can worship if they want to. And we're told that she leads her husband Ahab into worship of Baal. to offering sacrifices to Baal and to engaging in all sorts of detestable practices that will make Baal happy. And then the king is leading his court and his surrounding people into worship and. You know, and the other thing that Jezebel is doing is she goes on a systematic campaign to eradicate Israel also of the true prophets of the living God. That's Jezebel and her, well, remember when you have that showdown between uh, Elijah and the prophets and the priests of Baal on Mount Carmel, right? Those are all Jezebel's prophets and priests that are showing up for this showdown with Elijah, who Jezebel is trying to get rid of. And so basically what's happening over time here is that well into Jezebel's time in the uh, with Israel, as Israel is seemingly becoming much more a committed, devoted worshippers of Baal than they are of the God who had claimed them, delivered them from Egypt, given them this wonderful promised land, and entered into covenant relationship with them. All to say, what's Jezebel's main sin? Why is she such this villain from the Old Testament? Is that she was instrumental in leading God's people into this rampant idolatry? And so if you look at this character in the Thyatiran church, what's going on here, I think by associating this character or these groups of people with Jezebel from the Old Testament, it's basically you've got people in your church who are leading you or seducing you and leading you away into worship, false worship of other idols. You know, and for the church in the ancient culture, in Thyatira, where would this happen? Perhaps most significantly, or at least most regularly, it would happen in these... Trade guilds—they would get together and they would have dinners, feasts, festivals, largely in honor of their patron deity. And they would come, and as part of their meeting or a part of their event for the evening, they would first sacrifice food to this idol, and then they would all partake of this food together as sort of this communion act with this patron deity. Right? To be like—I don't know. Imagine if you're part of the PTA or the Parent Teacher Association, and you go to the meeting and. You know, as the meeting is getting started, they say, okay, first order of business, we're all going to uh, sing a worship song to Apollo. And we're going to pray to him and ask that he will defend our children in the school systems and all this. And, and then we'll come up and we'll all kiss this little statue of Apollo on, before we conduct our business. Uh, well, I don't know, or if you're a soccer player and before you go to you know, your, your high school game on, on Saturday, Friday night, you're going to slaughter a pig as sacrifice to... Uh, The god of Zeus. And then you're going to have a big pig roast. Sounds delicious, but it's the problem, right? Because you're you're engaging in this false worship as a means of, I don't know, securing victory for you. Okay, this is the problem. People from the church, part of these trade guilds. As part of their regular meetings or feasts, you're going to sacrifice to Apollo or to your patron deity. And then conduct your business. And see, here's the problem. Or, or to ask the question, why is this such a problem? I, you know, idolatry in and of itself, obviously not a good thing. God is very concerned for the worship of his people. But I want to push that a little bit further. It's not that God is just this insecure, jealous God. Not like he's some insecure boyfriend who, you know, his girlfriend starts flirting with other guys. He gets all jealous and mad and says, I know your works and your deeds and unless you some. Okay, more than that. Remember the big picture. That we're going to come back to quite a bit in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, in large part, is the story of this Jesus who is on mission to redeem and to restore a people that he loves and a world that he is deeply devoted to. This is the story of this Jesus who is on mission to rescue a world that is drowning in worship of these false and worthless gods. Right? And then we talk about this, how without the book, you're going to see the church is sort of like the frontline mission agency that is called to give testimony to this world that is drowning in their worship, their false worship of these worthless, empty gods. The church is called to give testimony that Jesus is the one who has conquered the power of sin and death, and that this Jesus is the one through whom you receive life, that this Jesus is the one who was willing to lay down his life so that you could be forgiven your false worship and your detestable practices, and whatever other sins you've been a participant with. And it's this Jesus. If you entrust your life to him, he is able, by virtue of his victory over the powers of sin and death, to lead you into life to the full, right? This is what the church is called to testify to with their life, with their actions, with their speech. And so if you're one of the followers of Christ, if you're part of the church and you're at these trade guilds and you're participating in the sacrifice and eating in these foods that are sacrificed to idols. Well, whatever you want to say about that and whatever your mindset might be going in that, what is coming across is not this clear, undisputable testimony that Jesus Christ is the better Apollo or the better patron deity who is able to give to you life to the full as you entrust yourself to him. Right, what is coming across is, okay, yeah, Jesus is great, but so is Apollo, and so is Zeus, and so is Artemis, or so is whoever. Do right, you see the problem here? But the church engaging in idolatry, engaging in worship and the sacrifice to these gods as an act of seeking their favor or seeking their power to guard and defend and secure their life, right? it's diluting their witness, and it's tarnishing the glory of Christ that they are called to give testimony to. Okay? The other thing that's going on there is sexual immorality. Um, you know, and we have to be careful here. Uh, we, from our vantage point, we're tempted to read this and see food sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality is two totally separate categories. But in the ancient world, certainly in the ancient Roman world, that's not the case. Idolatry and sexual immorality, they kind of went hand in hand. Right. Where was it that you quite regularly were going to experience sexual immorality? Oftentimes it was going to these feasts and these celebrations of these pagan gods. Or more pointedly, if you wanted to engage the services of a prostitute, where would you go? You would go to the pagan temples, right, because that's where they were all employed. So, right. So, which is all to say that there's not this hard and fast divide between committing, participating in idolatrous worship and sexual immorality. These two things kind of went together, So if you have somebody who's coming into your church, teaching and preaching, whatever, that's okay to go to these feasts and celebrations to eat this food and to engage in whatever practices are taking place there. Well, then you're probably thinking that just in general in life, this is an okay sort of thing, which itself is a problem. Because the church is the ones that Jesus has called to give testimony also to a totally different kind of love and sexuality. A love and sexuality that doesn't just take and use and consume the body of another for personal pleasure, but rather goes at love as an act of genuine self-giving uh, that values and respects the glory of the other as created in the image of God and being dearly loved sons and daughters of this creator. right? Or in other words, the church is called to give testimony of this kind of love that was modeled by Jesus on a cross. Giving himself sacrificially for the well-being of the other. Okay? So these are the two things that are going on here. Um, But uh, I kind of... I'm kind of viewing this all under the the main sort of umbrella of idolatry and false worship. And maybe to make this point, you know, you, you could maybe come back to me and say, well, what do we do with verse 21 there? Where it says, unless she repents of her sexual immorality. It almost seems like sexual immorality is the summary offense. Uh, but here's where, okay, bear with me. We've got to dive in a little bit deeper because it's not quite so simple. All throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, which again, the book of Revelation quotes quite heavily from, idolatry and false worship is often painted or characterized as sexual immorality or spiritual adultery, right? To go and to give yourself in worship and service of another God is to commit spiritual adultery against the God who has entered into covenant relationship with you. I think about the book of Ezekiel, maybe, which Revelation quotes from quite regularly. I think of Ezekiel 16, where the Israelites, God's people, are literally portrayed as a woman. A woman whom God had delighted in, loved and cherished, and entered into covenant relationship with, and bestowed all sorts of wonderful gifts to. But then as she comes of age, she decides to take those gifts and use them so that she can play the part of a brazen prostitute and engage in immoral activity with the gods of the Philistines, and the gods of the Egyptians, and the gods of the Assyrians, and the Babylonians. Again, referring to idolatry and idolatrous practices. Or think of the book of Hosea. Right? The whole book is God calling the prophet Isaiah to take a wife who was a prostitute, as this powerful symbol to the rest of the people that, yeah, this is what me, your God, this is what I have to live with day in and day out. I'm married to a prostitute who is committing spiritual adultery with all the surrounding gods. Uh, Or even if you wanted to go back and look at it in 2 Kings 9, chapter before, Jezebel is killed. Uh, We get the summary offense of all her sinful practices. And it's characterized, again, as prostitution. Jehu says, Will there ever be peace while Jezebel's whorings are scattered all throughout the land? Referring to all these shrines and temples and whatnot. Which is all to say, again, come into this, you know, you're reading verse 21. Unless you repent of your sexual immorality, I'm looking at it as, again, this is sort of a crash course or an entry-level course into what apocalyptic does. It uses symbols and images. And so when we're talking about this woman Jezebel who's leading this church potentially into sexual immorality, I think the big picture umbrella here or the big issue, the big problem is you have this prophet or group of teachers who are leading the church into spiritual adultery, into idolatry. Uh, if I had more time, I'd take you to the end of the book, and if you want to go look it up, I'm still not convinced of this, go read chapters like 17 and 18, where there literally is this figure of a prostitute who's part of this unholy alliance with Satan, and the merchants and the tradesmen are growing rich through their you know, immoral, idolatrous practices Anyway, big picture here: Church is being led astray into idolatry. An idolatrous practice. And two other quick things about it. You know, there's reference to this all being teachings of Satan. Did you pick that up in verse 22? I believe it is. Verse 22 or verse 23. Which again is what Revelation does. It pulls that curtain back. Reminds us that there's a very real spiritual warfare that's taking place. There is this force of darkness. Who is waging war against Christ. And doing everything that he can to pull the church off mission. And pull the church away from the life that Christ would have for her. And so by indulging these teachings and engaging in these idolatrous practices, what are you doing? But you are participating with this demonic Satan who is raging against, church, against Christ and waging war against the church. Seeking to detract us from the life of Christ and seeking to pull us off mission. So be careful about that. And the other thing I just want to point out is this whole business of tolerating this stuff. All right, it's one thing to not be engaged in it, but isn't it okay to just be a little tolerant of some of these different perspectives? And here's where I would say the church certainly should have known that to tolerate any kind of teaching that would lead you into idolatry is a man, it's a dangerous and slippery slope. The church should have easily remembered all the stories and all the examples from time and time again throughout the Old Testament, of people who start to flirt with idolatry and then find themselves full bore into it. Right? Think of like the Israelites coming out, of Israel, coming out of Egypt after God had just publicly humiliated and brazenly dismantled the gods of the Egyptian empire. And yet, they're hardly into the wilderness when they're, you know, burning down their gold and whatever and fashioning it into calves so they can bow down and worship it. You know, or again, the guys like we saw last week who got led astray by the Moabite women who led them into idolatrous practice. Or think about the Israelites when they enter into the promised land and God says to them, look, you need to get rid of the old inhabitants that were in the land. Because if you don't, you're going to start flirting around with them and their gods and they're going to lead you into idolatrous practice. And they don't do that. They don't get rid of the people that were in the land priorly, and then just go read the book of Judges. What is it? It's that very thing. You think of all the Israelite kings who take these foreign wives, who lead them astray into idolatrous worship, and then the whole nation goes astray, and then the whole nation finds themselves in exile. And then while they're in exile, they're prostituting themselves with all these other foreign gods. Right, time and time again, idolatry and teachings that would lead us into idolatry is stuff that, yeah, there just can't be any tolerance of that. So do you see now why this is such a problem? The church is called to be the ones who live in covenant relationship with Christ, and they're called to be the ones who give testimony that this Christ is greater than all these other gods that you're bowing down to, yielding your life to, trying to find something. And by tolerating messages that would come in and say, it's okay, hey, you can go to these feasts, you can engage in these meals, you can engage in these sexual immorality or whatever, church is quickly being led down this slope of idolatrous practice and idolatrous worship and so maybe just you know in the time we have left how do we make particular application to our church today considering we're not i don't know part of these trade guilds or business associations or that to my knowledge we don't have anybody going around preaching and teaching that's okay to engage in sexual immorality and all that stuff how do we apply this to us and i would just say a couple quick things first of all very simple reminder that what well, we should all know that God does not play well with other gods and that God takes the business of idolatry very seriously. Again, because he exists, he has entered into covenant relationship with us, but even more so because he has called us to be his witness of his worth and of his glory over and against any other gods that these people are running around chasing, chasing after with their lives. And so it's our job to also take idolatry very seriously and to make sure it has no root among us, no place among us, that we're not tolerating any teaching that would lead us astray into idolatrous practice. You know, and I think for us, where this becomes difficult business is that, you know, we've talked about this a lot, that our idols don't have proper names to them. Or our idols don't have literal physical shrines that you go to and you offer sacrifice to. So it's clear as day that, yes, I am offering the God who is promising to me material prosperity. Or I am going to worship the God who is offering to me the promise of peace and comfort. Or beauty and popularity. Whatever it is, right? We don't... We're more enlightened than that. We've taken down the little idols off the shelves or whatever. And we don't do that sort of thing. But we dare not think that that doesn't mean... That our hearts are not tempted to elevate things like material prosperity or financial security or beauty and popularity or peace and comfort, whatever it is, to elevate those things to a position of prominence in our hearts such that they are wind up being more important to us than our Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And we dare not think that we aren't tempted to desire those things and to worship those things. We dare not think that, you know, we come here that we don't just come here on Sunday morning and worship Jesus Christ, but then on Monday morning, you know, well, be tempted and allured by other these other gods and, and don't find ourselves at times having these desires for things which turn into cravings, which turn into uh, making them into idols, which we then live our lives in pursuit of and we fall apart if we don't get them. I don't need to get too specific in that right now because the rest of the book is going to deal a lot with the problem of idolatry and more specifics of it. So hang on, we'll talk more about that as we go. But for here, I just want to simple question Why is what's going on in Thyatira such a problem? Well, because idolatry is such a problem. It leads us away from the life of Christ and it tarnishes our witness to his glory. And so we have the responsibility to take it seriously. And make it, which makes it even more difficult work of having to give assessment in our life and say, yeah, okay. At the end of the day, are there certain things that I desire? Maybe there are good things, but have somehow crossed the line and becoming ultimate things in my life. Things that I do enjoy and delight in more than perhaps I I do Christ, or things that I live my life in deeper pursuit of than I do Christ Himself. I don't think I need to tell you that the world is full of prophets and prophetesses of these false gods. I don't need to tell you about the multi-billion dollar marketing, app or marketing industry that would seek to tell you that unless you have this thing, your life is worthless or empty or shallow or whatever. Or I don't need to tell you that the world is full of disciples of these false gods that you, don't, that you rub shoulders with, who testify, whether through their social media feeds or just in relationship with you, hey, that these gods, these gods of material wealth and comfort and prosperity or whatever, that these gods are the things that make life satisfying, fulfilling, or whatever. So we have to be on guard we swim in a world where these voices are coming at us all the time so we have to ask ourselves okay what does it mean to tolerate that sort of thing right i don't it doesn't mean that i necessarily cut off relationship with all these people or i don't drive up i95 anymore with the billboards trying to market to me but at the end of the day i have to think carefully okay what does it mean we we'll have to think discerningly what are these voices that i'm soaking in and what does it mean to not tolerate their influence in my life so that my worship of Christ is pure and undefiled Well, and then lastly, maybe the most important question is, well, how do we do that? How do we remain remain faithful in our worship to Christ? How do we remain faithful in our testimony to him? And here I think the passage is pretty clear. Hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my words until the end, I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earth and pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. It's actually a quote from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is that Psalm uh, begins the psalmist asking, why did the nations rage? Why did the rulers of the earth take counsel together and plot against the Lord and his anointed one? The fact of the matter is that God has installed his king on his holy mountain, Zion. And he has given to this king the, the nations as an inheritance. And he will rule over the nations with a rod of iron. And should they ever mount up resistance or rebellion against him, he will crush them as just like a cheap clay pot that gets struck with a rod of iron. And so what's it mean here when Jesus is quoting this, saying, To him who overcomes, I'll give you this. It's basically him saying, Look, to him who overcomes, I give you my kingdom. Which is what this whole book is about. This whole book is about how his kingdom of goodness and life and righteousness is going to be consummated. And when it does, to him who has remained faithful to him and to his word and to his testimony, I grant you full access to this kingdom of life. He says, and I give you the morning star as well too. That could mean a variety of different things, but I think most simply, if you just go to the closing chapter of the book of Revelation, chapter 22, I think it's in verse 16, uh, Jesus says, I am the root, I am the son of David, meaning I am the king, and I am the bright morning star. And the bride and the spirit say, Come. The spirit of Christ, the bride of the church says, Come. All who are, uh, or to him who has an ear, say, Come. To him who is thirsty, come. And to him who desires, Come and drink the water of life without payment. Basically, Jesus saying on the bright morning star to him who overcomes, I give myself to you. Hopefully, you're picking up that theme from these letters to these churches, right? The structure of these little, little itty-bitty letters where it has this glorious introduction to who Jesus is. And then you get down into the nitty-gritty of life, the things that are going well, the things that aren't going so well, the call to repentance and say to him who overcomes, hey, I'm giving you... Not only the kingdom that is yet to come, of life and goodness and righteousness, I'm giving you myself all along the way. And so I think The solution is pretty easy, just as these letters bookend themselves with the glory of Christ and who he is and the glory of Christ that we receive in faith. Right? That's the calling for us as we navigate this world with idolatrous temptations. How do we remain faithful to Christ in our worship and our witness? Is that we bookend our life with the glory of Christ. Right? We wake up in the morning with fresh vision of the glory of who Jesus is. And we close out our day being reminded that to him who is faithful, to him who overcomes. He gives the gift of his kingdom. He gives the gift of his life. He gives the gift of himself. And I'm just saying, in relation to that as well too, that as He gives us Himself, and as we receive Him in faith, and as we live more in Christ, then how could it not also naturally be that we will radiate and shine the glory of Christ more naturally to the world that He sends us to? Uh, N.T. Wright has a nice little short commentary book uh, on the book of revelation and he said something which i thought was helpful he said this morning star most most likely in the ancient world the planet venus at its pre-dawn brightest is a sign also of the special vocation of christians not least those who are holding on when others around them seem to be compromising under pressure with local pagan practices christian witness is meant to be a sign of the dawning of the day the day in which love, faith, service, and patience will have their fulfillment. In which idolatry and immorality will be seen as the snares and delusions they really are. And in which Jesus the Messiah will establish his glorious reign over the whole world. All right, so we bookend our life with Christ. We root ourselves in his glory. We remind ourselves regularly of the promises that he gives to us. Of his kingdom, of his of self. And we let that lead us into seeing false worship as worthless and empty. And we let that lead us into a deeper worship and also a deeper witness. And as we close, I I can't help it, but, you know, as this, this week, as I was spending time in this chapter, in this passage, and as I was praying through it, I found myself praying a lot for our young people here, especially the teenagers, And I don't know why, I think God just lays you on my heart, maybe it's because I'm a father now of uh, three uh, teenage daughters, and so I think about that and pray about that more. But, you know, I think in particular that, you know, you young people, especially you teenagers, like, you're, you're kind of the ones really out in the front lines in all of this. Like, in general, what does it mean to be a teenager is you're trying to, is you're in that stage of life where you're trying to figure out what is life all about? Right, to be a teenager means, okay, I've entered in that phase where I just don't like, take mom and dad's words as they are anymore, but now I'm trying to figure out for myself what life is and what it's all about. You know. And you guys know that you live in a world where there are all sorts of voices telling you what that life is all about. Whether it's your peers, or whether it's you know, the ads that pop up all the time when you're scrolling through your social media feeds, or whether it's the music and movies, and te- whatever it is, Right? there's all these voices trying to tell you What life is all about there's all these voices trying to tempt you to worship these things and as you do that they'll find the gateway to the good life sure come to church on sunday and worship jesus but then when you go back to school monday tuesday wednesday thursday friday right all these voices telling you no this is really where the true life is found and as you worship these things and you live your life in pursuit of these things you'll find life to the full and Man, you, and, and here's the other thing too, right? As, as teenagers, right, you don't have a lifetime of experience of Jesus proving himself to you over against these other gods as maybe some of the older folks here do. I put myself in that category or maybe even put myself in the category of as I'm getting older into midlife, the promises of God don't seem so far off and they seem all the more sweeter, right? You guys are still in those younger days where Jesus, you don't have a lifetime of Jesus proving himself to you and those promises seem very distant, And I just want to strongly encourage you, especially, man, this message is really to you that you have to see all the more clearly. Like when John says, or when Jesus says that these voices tempting you to worship these things as the pathway to life, right? That is satanic stuff. Satanic in the sense that its whole aim is to pull you away from your creator and your redeemer and also to pull you off mission. Right? So you need to see that, you need to hear that, to think, and you especially have to work hard to make the glory of Christ the bookends to your life. Right, Whether that's through here, worship together, where we exalt the risen Christ, or whether it's spending, finding time during your day to spend time with him, to listen to him from his word, to pour your heart out to him, to meditate on the things that he is and the things that he has done for you. Man, on the front lines, uh, It's all the more imperative for you guys to invest yourself in that, not only so that your your worship of Jesus will remain pure, but your witness to him will remain pure as well too. On the front lines of culture that is drifting further and further away from Christ. Okay, there's certainly much more to talk about that Uh, with that. I just felt I wanted to lay that out there as well, too. And certainly with that comes the reminder that all of us as a church, we have this responsibility to give testimony not only to the watching world, but to our young people and to one another here all the time of the glory of Christ, of his value, of his worth, so that we together will grow in pure worship and pure witness for his sake and for the watching world's sake as well, too. And that's what we're going to do as we come to the Lord's table, right? That's so what uh, coming to communion is all about. So I invite the worship team to come forward. I'll invite the, uh, the guys and ladies to get the elements ready. You know, what is it that we're doing when we're coming to the table? We're remembering the glory of Christ. We're remembering the glory of Christ who gave himself for us. And as we come to the table to grab the bread and to grab the cup, we are, in a sense, Uh, publicly enacting faith, we are choosing to come, like the invitation in Revelation 22 is. We come to find life from him. As we do that, we're giving public testimony to one another that here is where life is found, and here is the one who is most worthy of our worship and our witness. Uh, And also, the reminder that as we come, uh, we are coming looking to be fed and nourished, recognizing that we don't have the strength of our own to be faithful worshipers and faithful witnesses, but that we need the life of Christ within us to empower us to do that well. So we're coming in a sense of neediness to be fed and to nourish and be strengthened by Christ as we do that.